Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 112 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, podcaster, and partner at LandBank, and we are here to service all of your mortgage needs. I'm joined today and every Tuesday and Friday by none other than Daniel Foch. That's me, Daniel Foch, real estate investor, broker at Rare Real Estate. If you are interested in getting into real estate investing, purchasing a property, give me a shout, and um, in return, I will give you a great episode, which we have today. Today, we have a great episode just for you, and it includes myself and my buddy Nick and a third party, um, which was, when was this from, Nick? Yeah, this is from our time at the spring meeting, the ULI, Urban Land Institute spring meeting. Man, that was a hell of a week. We must have been working like 18 hours a day that week. It was awesome. Like, you know, I mean, a lot of people pay a lot of money to go to these events. We had the privilege of being able to go to it to um, gather content as part of our media partnership with ULI. And I'm sure a lot of you heard their ads on the podcast. Um, We conducted a bunch of great interviews to help them get contacts, sorry, get um, content Met a bunch of amazing people, went to some great parties, and um, unfortunately, when you're doing all those fun things, you don't sleep a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, there's there was also one other thing that happened that week. I woke up on uh, Thursday morning at at six a.m., uh, which was the last day of of the conference, and I had like twenty missed calls from you, Dan and Nicole, my girlfriend, also had missed calls from you. And I think you'd even tried to call me on Instagram. It was like, I was like, what is happening? Is this guy dead in jail? What's going on here? Yeah. Um, no, yeah, I think I don't, I don't think I have Nicole's number, but I think I was trying to call her on Instagram and you, and I think I made a group chat or something. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I was in an absolute panic. Yeah. You were, you were definitely panicking Skywalker uh, that morning. This guy was uh, so tired, everybody, that he got the days confused and he thought we hadn't released an episode. He thought it was Friday. It was Thursday. We have never missed an episode, and that wasn't going to be the first time, I'll tell you that. But, uh, yeah, too funny. I uh, I put that day in the past, so thank yeah. you for, for bringing <laughs> that one back up for me. Anyway, this is one of our favorite interviews from the ULI Spring Meeting. One of the, I think one of the first sessions we attended. So, I mean, this is a big conference, right? Um, it was attended by over 4,000 real estate professionals, and one of the, they, they have sessions about different topics around real estate. Um, and this was the moderator for a panel of the first session that we attended, which was yeah. the future of the mall, the shopping mall, which is a topic we talk a lot about. I'd covered it in my episode with Simone recently mm-hmm. about um, mm-hmm. commercial real estate and actually probably pulled a lot of, without realizing, pulled a lot of my talking points from this conversation with Rob. So um, really, really great overview on what's going on in, in Canadian real estate and the, and the big opportunities, but who was our, our interviewee? Yeah, it was a, uh, gentleman, a very accomplished gentleman by the name of Rob Spainer. So Rob is a seasoned real estate professional specialized in mixed use development and placemaking with two decades of hands-on experience. Rob has brought to life more than 80 legacy projects throughout North America, Europe, and the Caribbean. Rob has spent two decades working in real estate sector on complex retail and mixed use development projects, including 11 years as a partner and principal at Live, Work, Learn, Play, Inc., where he opened and led the Toronto operations and helped develop numerous large and small scale mixed use communities um, and destinations. Yeah. And prior to that, Rob spent five years at IntroS Corporation, which he does touch on um, throughout the episode 
For anyone who doesn't know, they develop mountain village resorts. Super cool. He's lived all over the world. So uh, that led him to an uh, international leasing team that he created uh, and worked with these iconic destination resort towns. Most notably, Rob is involved in helping develop a 147-acre mixed-use development on Mississauga's waterfront, Lakeview Village, uh, a 680-acre parcel of land, little-known Woodbine racetrack. For any of you people out there betting on some show ponies, Rob... Uh, you can thank Rob for that development. In Toronto, he was also involved in the 2015 Pan Am Games Athletes Village, which is now kind of on the lower east side of uh, of the city, similar to Olympic Village built in um, Vancouver. This literally neighborhood did not exist, so very cool. Uh, some very cool projects, the redevelopment of Toronto Waterfront. And, of course, Rob didn't just keep it to Canada. He went in down and developed Florida State's University um, and and tons of other notable, impressive projects across the globe. So, you know, Rob knows a thing or two about real estate. And we get into all that and more in this interview. We chat about how to reuse and redevelop those spaces such as malls that Dan was mentioning. We talk about what defines a project and even how to brand one. And we go into, or he goes into, I mean, fortunately for all of those listening, we didn't do a lot of talking, yeah. <laughs> which you try not to do when you have a great guest like this. Um, what pull factors does a community need to attract people? And this is one of those things that we can really use um, as as investors to think about where we're allocating our capital. Mm-hmm. The importance of a good ground floor can make or break a development. Um, so for those of you interested in, in condos, especially, I mean, I know, um, you know, there's a lot of people attracted to the pre-con space, attracted to the condo rental space. Um, they discuss a lot of, or he discusses a lot of how these cohesive vertical structures work and how the different components of them play a role within one another and how people spend their time um, and and what's needed in kind of thinking about placemaking and, and the way that people consume their time and will continue to consume their time moving forward in kind of these new um, paradigms that we're seeing as a result of, you know, post-pandemic society, work from home, uh, a lot of cha- e-commerce, a lot of changes that are happening in the world. So really, really cool uh, discussion from 30,000 feet. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it and I hope you do too. Set up called Reimagining the Mall and uh, you had Oxford, Cadillac Fairview, Quad Real and Almadav there to talk. And, you know, one of the trends that is happening right now is we have a serious demand for housing. We all know this in Ontario. There's a, there's a housing crisis that's going on. The province is working hard to try to advance that. And you have properties uh, that are hard to come by. Housing market, you guys know it better than uh, most and you guys covered in your podcasts. The reality is, is where are we going? And so certainly we're not going out, we're growing up. And these malls present an incredible opportunity to densify and not just densify with only towers, but creating an environment and a place. Because as I was, you know, when I moved to Toronto from Montreal in 2004, I could never understand how everybody in the GTA was going to use Toronto as their downtown. Couldn't figure it out. And a light bulb went off in my head. Oh my God, there's going to be downtowns everywhere. Markham's going to have a downtown or two. Uh, Mississauga, Brampton, Scarborough, even though it's part of Toronto, is going to have its own hearts. And so what you're seeing with these malls is incredible opportunities for development and redevelopment densification. Where can you do it? The question is, how do you put it together? And how do you put it together in a meaningful way? And how does it make sense? Some asset owners have properties that are performing. 
And that were some of the questions I was asking yesterday is, you know, so when it's really working well, how do you not mess that up? And, you know, Josh from Cadillac Fairview was talking about those challenges. You know, it was funny. Yeah. yeah. It was great. Yeah. And it's a real struggle when you have success because change is difficult. Um, when you have something that's less successful, then, you, you know, the world of opportunity opens up. But I think the real smart people in the industry are the ones that are not just thinking about, it doesn't work, we're going to go and change it. We are actually going to think about how to, how to morph with success that we already have going on. And, you know, one of the things that someone asked me um, yesterday is another, I was having another conversation, an interview. Um, you know, this seems to be the new emerging trend. Well, trends don't just happen overnight. This has been happening, you know, it started over a decade ago. People were starting to think about it. What is the place of the mall? What is the success of the mall? What, what role does it play? What role did it play 20 years ago? What role does it play today? And what role is it going to play in the future? So 20 years ago, if you really think about malls, you had these, you know, snack bars and food courts that weren't really that great. Today, we have a lot of incredible restaurants that are high performing and doing really, really well. So that shift was a huge, you know, shift of understanding you have a, you have a captive audience, you have people who are coming to a place. Yet you're not giving them an offering as an opportunity. So that collaboration started to happen. And then you start to think about where people choose to live or even choose to work. So if you can start to combine these, these elements, and this is really true mixed use, right? That is the future. Uh, cities are talking about it and, and working on it, neighborhoods, developments. Um, and I'm not talking about the application for a high rise condo at the corner of uh, any, 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 any intersection. Um, what I'm talking about is the opportunity when you actually have to put the pieces of the puzzle together and how that's going to work. And so that was what the panel was about. Now, again, a lot of these projects, as we said yesterday, it was, you know, the L's, <laughs> legacy, leadership, long-term and longer term. Because <laughs> that to me is the thing that in the old days, a project was, okay, what it's 24 months, it's 36 months, 40 months. These projects are 10, 20, 30 years. So the key to these projects is not just talking about something that's not going to happen. It's how do you phase it? And I think phasing is one of the most important things in large-scale mixed-use development that is critical. Cities deal with phasing in their own way for infrastructure, for planning, pipes, sewers, communities. Uh, same way developers have to think about it. And, and that's, that's where we're heading right now is if we're going to actually make these projects work, there's so many of them. How are you going to get through that process? But more importantly, how are you going to define these places? Because if you have downtown Toronto, or let's say you have downtown Brampton and downtown Markham and downtown Mississauga, and then you have these other developments, what's going to define that? Is it just a bunch of towers and, and, a, and a mall? You need useless towers. Bar. You kind of need more. Yeah, you need the, uh, a brand almost. You need a place. Yeah. And so all, all the branding in the world, all the naming in the world isn't going to make people want to go there. So, you know, have the privilege of working on a lot of great large-scale projects. I'm working uh, on the Downsview redevelopment uh, with Northcrest, working on the Lakeview development with Lakeview Community Partners in Mississauga on the waterfront, you know, Port Credit in the Lakeview neighborhood, working on uh, the Keyside redevelopment front. And what defines the projects are key. And, and you know, I even say this when I'm getting involved in these projects and our focus, you know, Spanier groups were real estate development advisors and we work with developers and large-scale projects to create the, that place, the at-grade condition, the ground floor 50 feet up. That's where I believe most people spend their time and money. The retail, the restaurants, the services, the civic, the cultural, the institutional, they sleep upstairs. They work upstairs. Absolutely. And that has to be market-driven. 
uh, and and have a value proposition. But if you don't get the ground floor right, why are you going there? And so you know, I won't I won't pick out the name of the project, but when working on a project, we were having this really interesting discussion, and I said it's really simple. If we don't do these things, I have two young daughters, ten and twelve. And, you know, kids today know everything, see everything. They're so involved in technology. I said, if if this place isn't great, they're just going to leave. And we're going to go to the other project we're working on because they are so aware of what's happening now. So you can drive into, well, how's bricks and mortar versus online and retail. But at the end of the day, how we feel, where we go, where we choose to spend our most valuable asset, which is our time, is the definition of place and, and how we choose to consume. So if all we're doing is, you know, I'm not saying that you don't need to go to the pharmacy when you need to fill a prescription or you need to go to a big box store when you need some, some um, products, you need something for the kids or groceries. I fundamentally believe that these things are important, but where are you going to want to spend your time? Where are you going to want to hang out and where are you going to want to create those places? And that's a lot of what I spend my time doing. And it's not just vision, it's implementation. Because it's great to tell a story, and as you know, our panelists were really showing incredible vision. It's all about the execution. It's all about delivering on these places. And lucky that in Canada we have so many big institutional uh, developers who are now starting to seriously take a look at these environments because it wasn't like that 15, 20 years ago. Really, really great points. Really great insights. I want to talk about the phasing aspect because you brought up a couple of good points. So I live in Liberty Village, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yep, and then it's kind of phased out and is still being built out right now. And it's kind of another little little downtown, right? And if you look at Etobicoke and New Toronto, another little downtown there. I used to live in Young Edmonton, another downtown uptown slash. Totally. So we're seeing that happen. But with these major developments where you're putting like a city place, you know, that happened 15 years ago or 10 years ago, with these new ones that are being built around the mall, and you're talking about the you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 year plans for some of these, and then you also brought up your daughters that are you know, 10 and 12, and you know, they're going to be in their 20s by the time some of these are done. How do you guys work what life is going to be like when you get to that point 10, 15, 20 years out? It's a great question, and we talked a bit about it on the uh, the panel, right? Like, how do you predict the future? Because no one has the crystal ball. And look what's happened in the last 5, 10, 20 years that's this changed drastically already, and, and not even, I'm just talking life-wise, let alone with building technology and space requirements and what people expect to be in their homes technology-wise. 20 years ago, you had a phone that folded in half. <laughs> Some people have that, but I mean, yeah, the way in which we interact, the way in which we communicate has changed dramatically. And so it's funny that, uh, and we say this all the time and I find this, this so interesting. There are so few people in real estate that are, they're amazing at what they do, but they're not necessarily thinking about the next step. Right. And then everyone comes back and says, well, why is this not working? Why is that not working? Office is not working. We built too much office. We need to convert it to residential or we need to do whatever. So these large projects looking at the future, I think it's phasing is a hundred percent. And I learned this at IntraWest when I used to build resorts uh, for a living. Um, worked for an incredible company. 
most people know it. Uh, built some of the most iconic uh, ski destinations. Whistler and uh, Collingwood renowned for those. That yeah, and uh, Trom- Mont Tremblant in Quebec, yes. and Squaw Valley in California, and Mammoth in California, and Copper in Colorado. All these amazing places, and I had the privilege of working there. But phasing was key because what we learned was that as you develop a plan, a large plan called a master plan, you can't build it all at once. And there are certain considerations you have to take into account when you're going to build that much, but you need to make sure that the phasing stands alone. So if you build a building and a component of that product, how can it function? And it's not just about the condos upstairs or the hotel. It's what's happening on the ground floor and what's happening in the public realm. And so one of the things that was really, I was inspired based on our panel yesterday is the conversation is not just about density. Yes, there is a housing crisis. Yes, we need more housing faster. But also, people are going to choose where they want to live. So, what else are you doing? So, if you noticed, Oxford talked about the Strand. I think is the term that, that she used, Veronica. Mm-hmm. A big public, uh, you know, gesture, yeah, yeah, to connect where you have office and residential. And so, people are thinking about other things other than just the the commodity, the product. But the commodity is what we know to be the foundation of our business in real estate, whether it's a house, whether it's a condominium, whether it is a office tower, a hotel, uh, retail, but how you dress it up, how you set up the infrastructure and the places, the things that are non, you know, non-residential, non-office are key. Um, I was with um, Dan Biederman yesterday. He uh, was the originator, creator of Bryant Park in New York. And uh, phenomenal, yeah, phenomenal story about converting a park that was at one point in time very, you know, dilapidated and dangerous. And yeah, yeah it was it was behind uh, New York Public Library. Yeah. Today, it's one of the most visited public spaces, active visitation, so much happening there, but also the performance of the real estate around it is astonishing. Rents are higher. Demand for space there is significant. And so they've proven out a model and, and, and it's been proven out in other markets to create the place. So when you think about these reimagining the mall places, what are you doing other than just some towers and the mall? How are you thinking about the asset? Is the mall, one of the things I loved hearing yesterday, these are developers of assets are right sizing the asset themselves, saying it may be too much. We will shrink it. In the case of Almadev, or actually Almadev said they were building more. I think it was Josh that said uh, they were going to actually shrink some of the asset. Josh from Cadillac. Yeah, from Cadillac Fairview. So is the idea is understanding how much. So getting back to your fundamental question, how do you have the crystal ball? There are things that people are going to want in a community. You have to sort of think of those as fundamentals. Then you have to actually plan out what the potential could be. But the phasing is where, where the, the real genius, I think, comes in because you're testing it. And again, it's it's a, a risky test when you take a chunk of development and go for it, but then you sort of you retool. So just because you planned something today and said, this is it, it doesn't mean it's not going to change. In retail, I can tell you 10 years ago that the term pop-up retail didn't exist. Today, when we look at projects and we are planning new projects and programming spaces and uses, we're accommodating for pop-up because I think it's critical. That's cool. Because it, it's, it, it is a... It is something that is here. It's valuable. It's needed. And why not bring in things that are going to help to boost the overall performance of the asset? 
and everyone's doing it and, and the big guys are doing it and the small people are doing it. And those that have unsuccessful retail environments have to start rethinking how they're going to retool themselves. But that isn't the answer. So the funny thing is, is a lot of people sort of come up with new ideas in mixed use development or let's just say retail and they just try to apply it everywhere. It doesn't work that way. No, it's not a one size fits all. Absolutely not. And so what you're going to see here, and it's it's just a reality, is there's a lot of projects that are all large scale redevelopment, mixed use. They're not all going to be successful. They're not. So what you really want to hope is that those people who are really focusing on it are taking a very hard look and, and having getting the right advice and thinking about what is going to be successful. But at a minimum, think about phasing because you'll mitigate your risk long-term. Yeah. So phase one could look extraordinarily different from than phase three or phase five. And you guys are always reinventing and, and you know, shape-shifting as, as the natural environment and, and what people want around you are, are changing as well over the course of five, 10, 15 years. I don't think it's going to look different. I just think that the product mix may change. So again, um, Toronto was predominantly a condominium development uh, environment over the last 20 years. Well, now people are realizing the their time horizons have changed and there's a lot of apartment that's being built. That hasn't happened in Toronto for a long time, which is, I think, fantastic because it's opening the door. So I'm not saying that the the master plan would fundamentally change. I think the plan would stay, but what sprouts up may change. And, and you'll see that opportunity. And you need to capitalize on those opportunities just because you thought it was going to be this. If an opportunity presents, you need to be nimble enough and proactive enough to say, okay, what does that do to the pro forma? What does that do to the opportunity? How does that impact the master plan? Because sometimes if you're just, you know, you need to be you need to be uh, committed to what you're doing, but sometimes new ideas come up and you need to be able to be uh, flexible. You need to pivot. Uh, agility. I'm interested in like you mentioned apartment. The the capital market structure right now is like kind of problematic. I think for purpose built rental, right? So like I I think the most recent calculation I saw was like your owner equity is like 15 percent in a condominium structure versus like 35 in a purpose built rental. What do you think we're going to see any changes in the policy environment? Like I know we have MLI Select and like. CMHC is trying to do some meaningful stuff and it works well in like suburban markets, but it's really not like they don't pencil well in urban areas where the land cost is so high. Like how many steps do we have to take as, and maybe it does make sense for your pension funds who have been holding, you know, assets for so long and they have the advantage of the lower land cost. Like, is that really so, the next phase? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to look at it in a whole bunch of different ways and there's probably a whole bunch of people that you would talk to that would be way more, um, qualified to answer this question, um, but from someone who's been involved in, in the industry for a while and 20 plus years, I would say you have to look at land cost, you have to look at opportunity, and you have to look at time horizon, right? One of the things you heard on the panel yesterday about time horizon can be your greatest asset. Uh, you know, the smaller developers who are trying to make that return happen and, and, and materialize development is, um, is hard because market conditions, uh, volatility, Lending can be complicated, but if you are a pension fund and you're playing the long term and the long game, or you have very patient capital, different things can occur. I still remember, it was probably about eight years ago, there were a couple of buildings that were going up and people thought, how is this apartment, you know, the rental market going to work here? 
Well, it played in the favor because the uh, per square foot rental costs were actually going up. Costs at the time for construction were constant uh, as they're rising right now. And so actually the return, the spreads worked. But your land value and your land cost has to make it work. So if you owned a mall for 50 years and a property for 50 years and you take a piece of that parking lot and decide to build, you're dealing with different factors and you're dealing with different – it's time horizon – Cost of capital, right? And cost of capital is important, but the return is always important. I, I have to say, all of these institutional investors are are uh, measured in the same way that, that even the small developer is. The difference right. is, is their, I guess, the time horizons that they have. Thanks. Rob, what would you say that you are excited about in community real estate right now? And what would you say the biggest challenges? Maybe I know you probably don't deal with more small cap investors. A lot of our listeners own, you know, a couple of duplexes or you know, they own a couple of doors. What are the biggest opportunities for those people, and what excites you from you know thirty thousand feet right now? Hmm. It's a good question. So, thinking about your listeners and just thinking about the environment, when I moved from Montreal to Toronto, uh, it was two thousand and four. I had been working for InsurWest, building resorts around the world. We were creating these really cool destinations. And I came to Toronto and started to look at for a job and I was looking for opportunities. And when I was meeting with people and interviewing, they were like, well, have you done a, a Walmart deal? <laughs> and I was like, no. Uh, have you done a shopper's drug mart deal? No. You don't really understand retail. And I had been living around the world building some of the most creative mixed-use developments. A little better than a Walmart deal, in my opinion. Listen, <laughs> uh, my hat goes off to all the developers who have been extremely successful because the, the those developments were essential and commodity-based. But I was surprised because I showed up in the big city. And all of a sudden, it was like, well, what do you mean? And then, you know, have you ever done a Starbucks deal? Well, we've done a Starbucks deal at IntraWest, but we licensed it because we didn't really trust that they were going to design the store properly. And so, IntraWest ended up licensing that opportunity and operating those businesses and very successful in some of the resorts because people like coffee, apparently, when they wake up in the morning, which is great. But what I was surprised by was the landscape of what retail was. What I'm most excited for today, and it was exciting, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I would go and meet with companies like on the panel, they looked at me like I was from outer space. Well, the world has finally arrived where place, and it wasn't me saying it on the panel, it was them saying it, community, place, environment is key. So even if you're a small investor and you're investing in a neighborhood and you own some duplexes or some townhouses or some rental properties, and there's a development coming near you and you're like, oh, what's happening here? The better job that they do on the what I call infrastructure, which is the infrastructure in place, the better off your assets are going to be. So when you buy a place, you decide, are you close to are you close to schools? Are you close to highways? Are you close to transit? Well, are you close to these environments? So I am most excited by the fact that today you can't get away with more of the same. You cannot get away with the mundane. And I'm not saying that small is better. I think it's the right mix, but it's forcing us all to think a little bit differently about where we choose to spend our time and money. So from an investment perspective, uh, you don't have to be buying uh, the likes of a 100-acre property or 50-acre property. You're buying small investment. Where do you want to be? 
What neighborhood do you want to be? And it's not about all the neighborhoods are done. Where are the new neighborhoods that are happening? And what we learned yesterday is there are a lot of them that are happening. So projects that may have looked like something are going to be something entirely different. So that opportunity, and I always used to say this at interest, my God, the people that went and bought property around these resorts were really smart. So from an investment perspective, how are you looking around at those opportunities that are under development? And it might be a apartment building. It might be a townhouse. It might be a commercial building. It's not only about buying things that, and you heard Almadel say this, it's not about buying things to tear them down. It's you have income producing assets and there's a lot of players in the market that buy things, hold them, think about the play for redevelopment. But some of the assets might just be great for your investors that, you know, bought a triplex. Fantastic. It's going to continue to perform. People can't only live in these small condos, whether they're small or big. Not going to get into that conversation today because everyone has an opinion. But at the end of the day, People choose to live today, certainly based on what they can afford, but if they have the opportunity to live in an environment that is good for them, their family, you know, there's a much better opportunity from an investment perspective. And so don't take it as saying buy a condo at one of uh, XYZ malls because that may not be your desire to invest in long-term and wait for the construction and the phasing. But maybe there's a great little house or a neighborhood nearby. Yeah. Well, the biggest concerns, biggest uh, holdbacks that uh, are happening right now. Biggest holdbacks. Well, we have have some market forces that are uh, not playing in our favor. Interest rates cost of construction uh, are challenges and approvals. We, heard, we talked about it yesterday. Municipal approvals are challenging right now. And it's not about pointing fingers. It's just saying that the process is complicated. So you have to sort of, it's hard to sort of, you, I just jumbled things. I jumbled costs, uh, interest rates, timelines. Those are complicated things. I don't think that if you know, some people who have different types of capital may say, okay, if the timeline was, you know, six months, we're going to fly because they have that, that benefit. But I, I think we have some serious challenges right now. Um, but when you have large projects, and I'll, I'll just go back to sort of the, the theme of our conversation, you can't wait, right? When there's a downturn, when there's a shift and you're focusing on a project of scale, like the ones we were talking about yesterday, you can't say, okay, hold on. We're going to put a pin in it because the process of approvals still takes the amount of time it's going to take. The process of design still takes the time. So, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, um, you know, these types of projects. And you have to be well capitalized to play, play in that game. So, I mean, for the uh, – I'm just trying to think about your other listeners of, you know, where you're at. That is like – that is good, like, scalable advice, though, I think. Like, you know, we've heard the same thing. Like, we did um, – I'm sure you know Sasha from Greybrook. Like he gave us basically the exact same advice yeah. that we're trying to give to the same, you know, uh, entry level investor that they're using in you know billion dollar projects is you know have a couple of exit strategies. Be willing to to stick to the original one through a long period of time if you if you have to. Right? Like there's, I don't know. I, I think like the advice is is the same for the whole spectrum, really. I think so, but I think that there's always that fear factor. And it doesn't matter if you're buying a, you know, unfortunately in our market, multi-million dollar property. Uh, 
Because if you're thinking about the investment side, it's you're not finding anything for half a million dollars that you can put your money into. Yeah, but they're not in Toronto. They're, yeah, no, not in Toronto. Hours away. They're far Perfect. away as you can get yes. in Ontario. Yeah. But you, you think about that, and it doesn't matter. You have to have the outlook and the patience for what you want to accomplish. The other thing I think that people and I'll never forget when I moved to Toronto, it was like everybody was in real estate. Like my taxi driver was a real estate agent, and oh, we're uh, talking about interest rates. Everybody was, and I was like fascinated by it. And so I think you need to also focus, right? I think one of the things that's really important, and again, the world that I live in is quite specific, quite focused, for better or worse. Um, I find that sometimes people think that they can jump into real estate, like they could jump into the tech boom, like they could jump into cryptocurrency and anything and be an expert. And I think, um, what is it, Robert Herjavec from uh, Dragon's Den or Shark Tank said, you know, uh, six, uh, an overnight success is a lifetime of hard work. So it takes time and you've got to spend your time investing in what it is you're doing. There are always deals and clearly you guys have also uh, found some of those close or far. But you have to have the intuition, you have to have the, the plan, and you have to have the staying power to say, okay, this is what we're doing. Because real estate's not like um, Dogecoin. <laughs> forget about any of that stuff. Just think about it. It's not like, um, yes, it's a commodity, but it doesn't trade quickly. And again, some people say, well, the housing market was on fire and you could flip. And it, it's just, I wouldn't want to jump into an investment and then have to get out quickly because that is when you see bad things happen. I feel like doing that, you're almost disobeying one of the fundamentals of, of real estate, right? And, and I think that, you know, when people reference the last two years or the year and a half where the market was just ripping like crazy, that doesn't make sense. That, that was never a good example for anything. It was actually the opposite of how real estate has traded for hundreds of years outside of other crazy bull runs. So I think Toronto is one of the most incredible real estate markets in uh in the world, I definitely think uh, having ULI here uh, for the spring meeting is an eye opener, and it's fantastic. It is the you know I was told yesterday by some of the leadership it's the most well attended conference of all spring meetings ever. Forty five hundred people, yeah, crazy in Toronto. And when you guys asked yesterday in the panel who was because Dan and I are both from Toronto, right? I was born and raised in the West Coast, but we both live here now. And uh, when you asked who is Canada and no one raised their hand. It was fascinating. Seventy five percent of the people here are American. Well, I needed to qualify it, and so I said, "Who lives outside of Ontario?" Yeah, and then it was like 90 percent of the yeah. room. And then I said, "Okay, who's from the United States?" Same people. Yeah. So people are, you know, listen. ULI is an incredible organization, and I've been involved for a very long time. I got involved in around two thousand and seven uh, in Toronto, and. Um, I think it's it's probably one of the best real estate organizations uh, that exists, period. Um, having this conference in Toronto is going to be an eye-opener. Uh, and I think it's going to have people really start to take uh, take note. A lot of the companies, right? Uh, two, of, two of my panelists, I mean, they're global players. Yeah. Right? Oxford and Cadillac are global players mm-hmm. and have made a significant market investment around the world. Their offices, their head offices are in Toronto. Brookfield's head office is in Toronto. And so it's fantastic for a lot of these uh, players and, and attendees to be here to see what we're doing yeah. in Toronto. Love it. Rob, um, thanks so much for, for everything. Where can people find out more about you or if any of the listeners need it? You know, 
your consulting services on, on any of their stuff that people get in touch with you find out more about you? Yeah. So uh, you can go to SpaniardGroup.com. Uh, to find out more about us and, uh, you know, reach out. We are certainly involved in some of the most, I would say, exciting mixed-use development projects out there uh, as advisors, and we're looking at development opportunities as well uh, to, to get involved in and partner on uh, for these projects. I think these projects are complicated, and I think that we're not talking about the panelists because those people have years of experience mm-hmm. and have institutional institutional experience. When you're looking at projects, and it doesn't matter if it's five acres, 50 acres, and you're thinking about these types of developments, you need to really understand what you're doing and understand how to put these things together. And we spend a lot of time at the Spaniard Group working with great companies, big and small, to ensure that success. And and again, the cornerstone of what we do is putting together the opportunity to create a place with a great economic return. Amazing. Um, I know you've been involved in your life for a while, so and in a variety of capacities. So, like you know, especially for young people who really want to get into the real estate industry or in any capacity because it's super multidisciplinary. What's really the incentive? Like, what you know, what's the sales pitch on on, on doing that for you know for for like both Nick and I know it, and we've you know we've been singing ULI's praises for years. I was volunteering a lot of my time in the past here, but. Uh, you know, for, for young people who want to get involved, who want greater exposure to the real estate space. Yeah. I think, listen, I think uh, getting involved is the first thing. If you're interested in real estate, I think ULI is a great place to connect. Um, again, ULI brings together people of all walks of life of real estate. So you can be sitting in a panel yesterday with the mayor of a city. You can be talking to an architect. You can be talking to a developer, a financier, um, you know, a consultant. I think it brings together great people. And I got involved in ULI because I had known about ULI years prior when I was working for IntroWest. It was really one of the only organizations out there that was thinking about other ideas because at IntroWest, we were really trailblazing. And so when I came to Toronto, I got to meet some people. I got involved in ULI and volunteered my time and got involved in the program committee and and started to restructure that. So we were having less events, but more impactful events. I think at the time when I got joined, it was three or 400 people, maybe 500 people. Uh, today, ULI Toronto is one of the largest district councils worldwide. And uh, I went from the program committee to be the vice chair of the organization, to be the chair of the organization. And I sit now on the advisory board and the governance committee uh, and still very you know supportive and active in ULI. Huge proponent. So for young people, it's not about having the role. It's about getting connected and getting involved. And I always say to young people, if you want to network, don't do it when you need something. Do it always. Right. And connect with people so that you have that network um, that's available to you. I can't tell you how many people call me when they have lost a job or are unhappy in their job. And I'm like, okay, uh, sign up for ULI. Yeah. And they say, what do you mean? I'm like, it's the easiest, best investment that you will make to connect with people, to learn. You may read an article. You may hear a panel. You may meet somebody. But take the time to do it when you don't need it as opposed to when you do because everybody yeah. can feel that I sense. Mean, I absolutely love that. That's, we just did an episode on, on this kind of networking season, right? All the events happening. We have a great event next week with uh, actually Dana and I presenting this Friday at an event smaller than or next week at an event called Missy Middle. And we always tell everybody because, you know, our, our audience is, well, how do I get it? How do I meet the right people? It's about networking with intention. Right, going in with intention, going in 
but you know, what you said about not going in when you need it because you can feel that it's almost just like okay well I'm not just here to be used you know I'm here to collaborate that's right so uh, I really love that yeah. that's a great takeaway and I think that ULI Toronto will continue to be uh, strong because it is welcoming everyone uh, I really love uh, some of the things that ULI Toronto is doing these days to really try to broaden the audience uh, broaden the membership and broaden the the discussion, and and it's it's really come a long way from where it was, and proud to be a part of it. Um, that was a great conversation. I uh, I learned a lot, and um, you know, it, one of the things I got, especially towards the end there, and we I know we did an original episode for um, ULI regarding this event about the importance of networking, and meeting people, and especially you know the end to end nature of what's required to be successful in the real estate space and tying it all together. And ULI is one of the greatest places that I've found to, to do that. Um, and Rob was instrumental in bringing ULI, the Urban Land Institute, into Canada, I guess, because of his, um, his experience traveling and connecting with other people through that industry group. Yeah, I mean, look, Rob knows what he's talking about, and that's because he is talking from experience. I mean, the guy has touched so many different types of real estate been a part of so many different large-scale projects and i'm kind of jealous of of the intro s portion of his life you know flying around to all these different amazing resort towns and being instrumental in, in creating those it's uh it's it's very cool um and and again going back to uli you know where would schmucks like you and i get the opportunity to sit down with a guy like that face to face and and numerous other people that we that we met from from again from across North America, so you know I know a lot of our listeners are are interested in in eventually maybe moving down to the states, moving some of their capital down to the states, moving their investments down to the states, and you know we met a ton of great Americans, uh, developers, investors, people that source capital all through the ULI network. So thank you again to both Rob for taking the time to sit down with us and uh thanks again to uli for for the tickets and, and again could not recommend more um just getting out to these kind of events and and again go listen to that uh go listen to a how to network episode before you go to these events and, and get out there and network with intention and uh yeah and let us know if you like this format of episode and uh because we we did quite a few of these on-site interviews um some of them the audio turned out great some of the audio um, some of them the audio didn't because yeah. there's a lot of background noise we were literally at a conference um, well, we were actually tucked tucked away in like the media room in the basement of yeah. uh yeah, of the convention center. So yeah, and and we'd like to continue to go to ULI's events. So if there's specific people you want to hear us speak to, um, or specific people you want to hear that we've spoken to already, um, let us know if you if you like this episode and make sure you check out ULI. If you just Google Urban Land Institute, um, we'd highly recommend uh, getting involved for sure. Yeah, and and while you're checking ULI out, open another couple tabs and uh, make sure you check out real estate meetups and a real estate merch. Uh, nothing to do with ULI, just just our stuff but .ca. it's pretty good .ca yeah thanks so much for listening everybody hope you got a ton of value out of this episode we'll talk to you soon the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group license number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a 
member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.